Hello and welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, a series of conversations with the artists, labels, and promoters who are shaping the electronic music landscape. I'm Jordan Rothline, and I'm the tech editor at Resident Advisor. It wouldn't be controversial to call Masters at Work the most influential pairing in the history of house. Soaking up the wealth of dance music coming out of New York in the 1980s, they emerged at the turn of the 90s with a wildly funky sound that seemed to distill the city's disparate styles. Their hits are numerous, from their countless dub remixes to the ubiquitous Nervous track under their guise New Yorican soul. But their combined effect on today's musical landscape, whether in New York or well beyond the tri-state area, is palpable. Mid-90s UK DJs speeding up Masters at Work tunes helped spawn Speed Garage, for example, which left an indelible mark on that country's dance music scene. As selectors at some of New York's key 90s clubs, proprietors of one of house music's legendary recording studios, and fastidious record collectors, we knew they'd have stories to tell. So on the eve of releasing a mammoth four-disc House Masters compilation for Defected, Kenny Dope Gonzalez and Louis Vega visited our London headquarters to record this extended interview with Stephen Titmus. guys were in town this weekend for Boiler Room. How was that? Crazy, crazy, crazy. Lots of energy. Yeah, felt really good. You know what I mean? Sound was great, which is always a plus. The booth sounded great. So, and the crowd was there. So, you know, once the crowd is there and everything else and all the elements are in place, we let off the energy. So it was a party. And I couldn't help but notice you played pretty much all of your classic records. Is that something you tend to do when you play as masters at work? Or do you often play? Not at all. No, at you know, all. but you know, that's what the fans want. I mean, the, the room was full of fans. You know, they had tattoos of us. They had shirts that we never made before. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> they had their own thing going. It was beautiful. So, you know, uh, that that's what they wanted to feel from us. and. It's a different effect when you have the person who actually made the records uh, playing them and the way they play them. So we we did it in a special way, though. We we kind of did a lot of fun things with them, and I think uh, everybody recognized they were they felt like different versions too. So, but as well, we play a lot of you know a lot of the stuff from today that we love and some of the new music we're making. So. Yeah. So it feels like as masters at work, you know, you never really stopped, but it feels like you're doing more masters at work stuff this year than you have done in previous years. Uh, has that been a conscious decision or is it just something that's kind of the right opportunities have fallen into place? Basically, I, I feel like we're at that 20 year cycle moment. So we're, we're back to the beginning. And um, I think with the whole new generation, a lot of the promoters and a lot of 
people out there was requesting for us to to come together and perform together. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like you said, we do have our separate things going on, but there's something special about us playing together. You know what I mean? And people like to see us playing together because they're going to get a lot of different things, a lot of different elements, a lot of um, different music, period, you know? That being said, and and them wanting to get us together and and do these shows has sparked other people to want to see it and, you know, and so on and so forth. Also, you know, the fact that had wanted us to to get together and and, and do a compilation, you know, the House Master Series. So, you know, we got together for that. But, yeah, it it just happened. You know, it's nothing like we said, oh, you know what, we should tour this year or this and this and that, you know what I mean? But it just it just happened pretty much on its own, you know, which is great. You mentioned, you know, a 20-year cycle, but I want to go all the way back to the start, right to the very beginning. Louis, you started a little bit before Kenny. Can you tell me about your first clubs that you DJed at back in, you know, 1985? You know, the, the Devil's Nest, I believe, was one of the first big ones that you played at. Yeah, you got it. I mean, that was it. That was the first real every week residency that I had it was at the Devil's Nest it was owned by uh, the guys who owned Fever Fever Records and Fever Club which was the famous hip hop club in the Bronx so they wanted to make a dance club and during the early 80s into the mid 80s I was doing a lot of the big neighborhood parties and you know high school parties and you know doing my own parties so uh, they came to one of them at this place called the Chess and Swallow where I had done three events and uh, they said they were opening up a club and I said wow a dance club from the FIBA family it was it was perfect I ended up playing at the Devil's Nest for about nine months and then from there just shot into Manhattan and I played at the old fun house which was called Heartthrob then you know after that Studio 54 1018 I had played all in all the clubs in New York City by the from 85 to 90. I guess when you very first started out, you know, it was kind of like the freestyle era, you know. Yes. Um, can you define what that was, you know, because uh, it might not be familiar to a lot of people. A freestyle, I mean, you know, I was uh, heavily influenced by the sound of uh, Jellybean Benitez at the Funhouse and um, as well Larry LeVan. So I had that mixture of, of the worlds always with the music, whether it was house music or the disco classics or uh, Latin hip hop. It was a sound that came from the sounds of what was happening in the Funhouse. You know, when you had a Shannon, you had a Arthur Baker making all this great music. We were influenced by that, as well as being influenced by the new wave sound of, of the UK from the early 80s. So you know, you're talking about a lot of Puerto Ricans and, and African-Americans in the Bronx creating a sound together. And it was myself, it was Andy Panda, it was uh, the Latin Rascals, it was Todd Terry, and so many more, Carlos Berrios, I mean, you name it. We all created this sound and the base and the home for that sound was at the Devil's Nest. And I was the DJ playing all that music and eventually going into Heartthrob in New York City. So I started remixing a lot of music from from that sound, and, and uh, it was huge. It was on the radio. I mean, you know, we were selling 250,000 to half a million records on, uh, with those records. I mean, they were really big. You're talking about Information Society, which was my first remix ever. It was on Tommy Boy Records. And then from there, it went on to the Cover Girls and Noel and all that other stuff that I had done. But at the same time... You had a pop artist like Debbie Gibson, who was like the Britney Spears of that time, come and asking me to remix the record. So, you know, I had a, a relationship that started building with Atlantic Records and uh, some of the major labels at that time making that music. But as well, I played house music when it first started. I, Marshall Jefferson played there, Larry Heard. I mean, everybody, Robert Owens, uh, we had all of them as well in the freestyle clubs. So I had this kind of format that went from freestyle music to house to the disco classics to hip-hop to reggae 
eventually later on, I, I ran into Kenny. Absolutely. And it seems like, you know, both of you guys, that early New York scene, it was very much, the styles were very mixed. Both of you come from that background of playing lots of different styles of music. And I guess, you know, later on, that's what made you guys who you are. But you mentioned Larry Levan, actually, and I just wanted to kind of, it seems like such an obvious question to say, but what made Larry in the garage so special? Because, you know, we'll never see that, but, you know, you did. Well, you had a super creative DJ who knew his music very well, and uh, he played on the biggest sound system in the world, the best sounding place ever. It was like being in a studio, you know, listening to a giant sound system. I mean, you know, to me, he was the first superstar DJ, man, where everybody, you know, went to church and he was behind the uh, the altar. You know what I mean? That's what it was. Exactly what it was. I went in 1980. I was really young, but my sisters got me in because their their cousin, I have half sisters, and their cousin was uh, one of the bouncers there. So that's why I was able to get in on, on one of the, the members' nights. And when I first went in, it's crazy because I remember the records exactly how he played them. I remember him mixing, you know, Street Player by Chicago and coming out into a Thousand Fingered Man. You know what I'm saying? I remember that mix. I remember that sound. I remember him playing those records and, you know, the, the Tana Gardners and all these great records that he had mixed a lot as well, too, and made those records. So it, it was really uh, overwhelming. It was powerful. He had a huge effect on, on many people. And it seems like that really resonated even before when the garage finished. You know, it still resonated through New York culture for, you know, many, many years. Of course. I mean, you know, you got to understand he made a huge body of work. I mean, you look at just what he made with Gwen Guthrie, Grace Jones, uh, you know, the Peach Boys, like, you know, as well as being a very idolized DJ by all of us. You know, he also made a lot of great music that impacted the scene in New York and around and, and eventually around the world. So, Kenny, you started a little bit later. What was your first forays into DJing? Was it parties, house parties, and the, and the like? Yeah, well, there was two kids that lived across the street that used to bring out a set on the weekend. So that was the first time I actually seen records being cut and played in a certain way. Me being young, and you know, I was like 10, walking to the store for my mom or whatever, and would, would sit there and watch and just look at them, like what, just amazing how they were just going back and forth from one, one record to the other. That was the first time, you know. At that same time, Super Rhymes had came out, Jimmy Spicer, and I bought that record, and that was it, pretty much. It was just like, after that, I was just like, oh my God, like I, got, I need to do that, <laughs> you know? And it stuck with me, you know? Um, and that was it, you know, and little by little, I wanted to work at a record store. I was too young and they were like, no, come back when you're a little older. And I kept going back and I would buy my music there. And then one day he said, you know, I asked again and he was like, okay, well, you got to clean the basement. You got to sweep the front of the store. And I did it. You know, I was just like, no problem. I just wanted to be around the music. You know what I mean? And yeah, at that point, you know, once I started working, you know, he was like, look, you need to, his first lesson was you need to be open-minded and you need to sell a lot of music and i said well, what do you mean by that he's like well we sell rock music alternative music urban music r&b music latin music you got to know it all reggae hip-hop everything you got to know it all so i was like really i wasn't into all the other genres so i was just like really and i'm like so but i wanted the job and i wanted to learn so that was the first you know, intake of all the music. And then there used to be this cutout bin in the store. And I took some of those records home, you know, and uh, that's why I first found my first breaks. And I'm like, wow, this is crazy. And they were like rock records, you know? 
So that got me into the whole breakbeats, you know, and at the same time, there was this, this series called The Ultimate Breaks and Beats that came out. So that was just like a history lesson in itself. You know, and that's that was the beginning stages of it. You know, that was like 1985. I was 15. And then I wanted to go to the next level and I wanted to start playing, you know, do a party or something, you know. And then that's what we started doing. So, you know, being in the neighborhood, I met some other kids that, that used to come to the store to buy records. And one of them was Mike Delgado. And we clicked and then... um we started doing parties. Then a little bit time after that, you know, we started calling the parties masses at work. And then the buzz was so big in Brooklyn that Todd Terry ended up coming to to the parties as well. And he would bring us music that he was working on. But the crazy thing is at the same time that he's coming to us, he's going to Louie in the city and bringing them stuff. We're not knowing what's going on. And then at that point, since meeting Todd, I would go to his house. I would cut out of school go to his house, watch him create. But I'm just watching what's going on and watching how you build tracks and, and all that. And I'm in taking all this information. And I said, you know what, I want to do that. I started making beats, started creating, putting records together. I put out some music through New Groove. And I had to this record, A Touch of Salsa. So that was the record that actually linked me and Louie together. Louie heard it. Told Todd about it. Todd was like, yo, that's my man from Brooklyn. He linked us up. Louie wanted to do a remix, which never happened. But at that point, he was working on his album. He's like, come to the studio. Went to the studio. And the rest is pretty much history because that was the beginning of Masters at Work, the production team. And even that very first, you know, Kenny Dope record, even without you, Louie, mm-hmm. it had a lot of those elements that make Master at Work what they are. You know, you sampled a Latin record. It had some hip-hop elements in there. There was some disco in there, too. Well, you said, you know, you spoke about some before that was about, you know, and actually Louis too, he touched on it, whereas there was different genres that you played, which is very important, and I, I want people to know, like, they can't be scared to actually sit there and try to play this music. It's about education and it's about pushing the music forward. And we were brought up on that. Luckily, I, I was really fortunate to to listen to mix shows back then and see older guys play. And that's how they played. You played music. It wasn't so much about playing a genre of music. You know what I mean? You, you, you wasn't scared to throw in this alternative record from the middle of the record and then go to a whole other genre and make it all work together. You know what I'm saying? So seeing that absolutely was an influence in us creating and us doing what we do. And it ended up to be, you know, be that way, not even thinking about it because it was already instilled in us. You know what I'm saying? So when we did our dubs and when we were done with that, we were like, okay, we want to go do something else. We want to incorporate something else. We brought something in, but it was just, we wouldn't think about it, right? It was just happened. It was just like, all right, let's, let's do this now. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's been a great run. Now we have an opportunity to pass the knowledge on, let this new generation experience what we experience. I ain't someone, I don't, I don't care. I'll tell you things and how things were done and so on and so forth, because you know, it's, you know, it's all upon the person who's going to create it and, and put it together. Everybody thinks different. We could all have the same gear. We're going to make three different records if it's us three in the same room with the same equipment. It's just basically what goes on. So I'm not really 
scared about telling people, you know, ideas or, or how things were done because you're going to do it differently. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's based on the individual. But, you know, like growing up in New York, that's what it was all about. You know, Larry LeVan, as you said before, and even Tony Humphreys, who was playing at Zanzibar. I mean, you had all these great super clubs. It's like it was like having 20 Ministry of Sounds in New York City. Imagine clubs with sound systems like that and these DJs who played an eclectic sound but kept you dancing all night. I mean, Larry LeVan was playing B-52's record, and then he would play, like, a Salsa record. You know what I mean? It's like he... All the DJs in the, at that time in New York were influenced by Larry and David Mancuso and Nicky Ciano and all these guys, and, and uh, that's just the way the DJs were playing, and we loved to play like that. And it was all about the melting pot of New York and growing up there with all that, with hip-hop in its birth also disco and that huge you know and of course there was an underground disco sound it wasn't like you know you're not gonna hear love boat you know what i'm saying he was hearing like some really great i mean arthur russell records i mean all these great records coming from uh, the new york scene you know uh that's what we were, were brought up on so th that has a lot to do with what you know who we are today and how we make music that is what we try to tell the youth today, that, you know, it's a, you, you can like a record even if it comes from a different genre. I mean, you know, it's okay, and you can, you can work it into your set, you know, but that, that's where the, the harder work comes in because you got to know there's something that's inside of you that it, it comes naturally to be able to play like that, you know, and it's not to say you can't learn it, but you got to feel it. You know, I think people are recognizing that, you know. I'm getting a sense that you feel like you're not seeing that kind of level of eclecticism today. Would that be fair to see that, say that? Or, or is it is that something you see when you're playing? There's some, there's some guys that do it. You know, you have the Rich Medinas, you have the DJ Spinners that do it. You know, few few guys that do it. But the majority is a lot of DJs pushing buttons today. You know what I'm saying? It's just, it's... I shouldn't say DJs because to me that a DJ plays music, you know, actually cuts and you know that that kind of stuff. But yeah, actually DJ Premier said it great. He was like, you know, there's a lot of button pushes today. You know, that's what he calls them. He don't even call them DJs. You know, so, but nah, it's 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 all good. At the end of the day, they're playing music and you're playing music for a crowd. But there's a certain craft. There's a certain you know responsibility that you have once you get behind there. If you're behind there, you got a job to do. And the, your job is to make those people dance. And you can make them dance. You can educate at the same time. That's what it's about. And that's what it should be about. You know, one thing I say is different now because the amount of record stores today is a dime a dozen. Because, you know, it's like we were very fortunate to grow up in that era. So that was a meeting point. You know what I'm saying? You made friends at the record store. You made future business deals in record stores. You met other producers in record, artists like a in record. It was a community. Yeah, know? so it's like, you know, when you went to the store, you felt a certain way. You went there on Fridays, you said, I'm gonna stay here four or five hours, and I'm gonna dig through this music. Whereas these kids don't really have that. You know, there's, there's stores here and there, but not like before, yeah. which they will never experience that. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they have YouTube, YouTube's cool, but YouTube is as good as the information you put in it because you ain't going to find nothing by bumping into a record jacket in the store. You know what I'm saying? It's very different. So, you know, people got to work a little harder to find joints and to find songs. And and even if you're on track, so a beatport. You got to sit there for hours digging through, you know, and it's a constant grind. You know, I sit there for hours sometimes looking for stuff and trying to find something that's different. You know what I mean? 
So it's hard. It's not easy, you know. So, so anytime that I'm, you know, I'm able to play something that somebody maybe never heard before, and they come and ask for it, of course you let them know what it is because they might turn on two other friends of theirs, and they might, you know what I mean. And then it keeps going down down the road, you know. But I think it's great the technology today. I mean, you know, you have so many different opportunities and ways to DJ. You know, the selection is so important. Obviously, uh, technically. It's now made a little easier for people, or maybe a lot easier to play a record and stuff. But you have to, you know, have the proper selection and the way, you know, the way you're putting it together. There's just so many ways of doing it. So I, I like the fact that, you know, there's all these new gadgets and new fun things you can really get creative on. So, uh, you know, I mean, we just do it more of the, you know. We got that old school thing, and that's just what we have. But we also look into these new pieces that come out, and we love experimenting with them and doing it, you know, through the way we hear it, you know. So uh, I love the fact that there is opportunity for uh, a lot of different opportunities for the youth to get into it. It's just, like he said, you know, you, you have to go out, you have to do your homework, you know, listen to your music, and it's about the way you express yourself to everyone out there. Don't get me wrong. It's like... You know, I love Ableton, you know what I'm saying? Because think about it. You're able to record something, edit it, spit it out in a matter of seconds where years ago you had to record it to reel to reel, splice it up, then bounce it back in real time. Yeah, obviously, you know, I definitely embrace the technology, but I use it for different things. The fact that I could, you know, have an MPC Pro in my iPad and just bang out beats on a plane that's crazy to me and export it and then finish it later or export it and play it you know what i mean that that's bananas to me where there's no excuse today for making music because what we used to do back in the days used to take five days you could literally do it in two hours you know what i mean the time stretching vocals sometimes used to take two and three days to do back in the days you know line by line the engineer would sit there and actually put these things together when we had to remix a, a artist and pitch their, you know, their tempo up to where we wanted to, you know, do the remix at. So, you know, the technology's there, you know what I mean? But um, it's the way you use it, pretty much. It's one interesting thing that um, you mentioned before, you was actually looking into doing something with Tractor, maybe like a live thing. Is that something you guys have, have looked at further? You know, I don't know how that would manifest itself. But. You know, they approached me about it at that point Louis was still, he wasn't ready, and I don't think he was on sticks yet either. And I was moving around too much, too. I mean, it yeah, takes a lot of time. It to, was, you know, it's, you got to think about the setup. You know, it was almost like we need all our music, but our, our biggest thing is we wanted to be able to play the way we play out of sync and then jump into sync and jump out of sync and make it work somehow, you know, because think about it, if we were able to sync on the fly, we could actually remix records on the fly. But we technically, we didn't want to play two or three hours sync the whole time because it would have been just stiff. It's you're just in one tempo and no, we like to fluctuate and bob and weave and all that kind of stuff. So it was a, a crazy time and again, it's, it was just set up, you know what I mean? And and time goes by so quickly 
that is crazy you even just said that because that was probably like two years ago. You yeah, know what was, I mean? Then we discussed it. And I remember it clearly. I remember the conversation. I remember going to Germany and talking to them about it because they were like, look, you know, we really want you guys to use this stuff and we'll set you up. And But it's just we're always on the go and, you know, it, it's crazy. And I still to this day don't have all the music that I want in my computer. Still, it's just it's just time consuming. You got to record your records and make sure they're clean and, you know, it's it, there's really no time. You it's know? time more than anything. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's not that I didn't want to do it or he didn't want to do it. Right. I was a little bit more ready than he was, but it was just a time factor. And then the other thing is we don't really plan our sets. Like this weekend, we didn't really talk about anything. It just is on the fly. So with a situation like that, you have to have some sort of be on the same page because it's you know you're you're rocking computers and laptops and shit like that nothing's rehearsed we don't rehearse we don't practice you know we say all right well just go and i'll feed off of you you know and and that's how we do it we just bob and weave till the three hours or four hours is up you know so it's difficult so if you had the dream set up if technology wasn't a problem what would you guys like to do? What would be the kind of dream performance for Masters at Work Live? It would be to go in and out of digital, got out of sync, to kind of remix on the fly. That would be the the, the dream setup. Yeah. You know? Maybe with Kenny doing some live having keys. Keyboards, and, having keyboards, having drums, you know, yeah. drum machines, you know what I'm saying? It's like, so we can kind of go in and out with, with our gadgets. As well, we have what we use now, you know, which are isolators and the effects units and... You know, and then we have a lot of room to do a lot of creative stuff. I mean, having, we have up to eight things that we can run at the same time. Imagine that, you know, uh, if that was synced. And then when we came off sync and we can pop things over it, you know, live. Kenny said as well, going into Ableton and now be able to play some keys over some beats and he's muting things. Like, it would be almost like we're DJing, but as well in the studio doing what we do when we made, when we make records. Right. So when you are in the studio, how does it really work? You know, is it more you on the beats, you on the keys? Are those roles fixed or do you kind of swap around? It's open, you know. You know, Louis used to make beats. Then he got lazy and then he didn't want to make beats no more. <laughs> then he just I started wanted, playing keyboards. Then he wanted to play keyboards. <laughs> then he started playing keyboards and stuff. But, you know, in the beginning, yeah, we, we used to talk in the morning before the session. He would call me like, you know, 10 in the morning and we would basically go over ideas and concepts and whatever we had in front of us, whether it was, you know, Debbie Gibson or a Spice Girls record or whatever the case may be, you know, he would say, look, I, I like this part of the song, you know, I may sample this, these words, these lines. So then I would listen to that and then, you know, come up with a beat for it. You know, sometimes maybe maybe one little sample of a chord or something. And yeah, we just go to the studio with at least a bed of the track. And he would come in and get behind the keyboard and we would go over ideas and he would play. And yeah, it was pretty much done. You know, it was like really just a vibe. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't really no second guessing. It was just like, and he, you know, at the same time, he, he I know he would have come in with certain progressions that he wanted to lay down and and stuff like that and and yeah it was done you know it was it wasn't nothing too thought out you know what i'm saying as the the productions got more elaborate then yeah things started to get thought out a little bit more and who we were going to use and who we were going to call and 
who was going to record the session. We had different engineers. They had their specialty as well. Some were better than others when recording. Some were better than others in mixing. Some were better than others in effects. So it's it's a lot of things that actually go into making a record and a remix. So um, sometimes they were piggybacking. Sometimes one was backing up the other because you know the sessions were long and we needed them for the next day to be fresh. Yeah, it was you know me laying the foundation down. He would come in, you know, do his thing. We would mix the record together. Sometimes maybe he had he did his versions, I did my versions. It was different all the time, you know. Yeah, I had a keyboard at home as well, and yeah. I would like let's say come up with a groove, and I'll say Kenny, check out this groove. I'll be playing the grooves, then he would do the beat to my groove. So it worked in different ways. Yeah, you know, it was with, always with different. You know, it could have been a little hook of a of a vocal that we pegged off the song, and then you know that became that hooky part. Like you listen uh, to a song like "Only Love Can Break Your Heart." It's crazy. I was just thinking. You about know what I mean? That one little thing there, and then you know. Let's say in that case, Kenny had a beat. I started playing the keyboards over the sample. He had a beat and a little sample sound of an organ. And then I played bass lines around it. And then we had a string part. And then we had a little more keyboards on top of it. So, you know, they were minimal grooves that we did a lot in those days. But that's what everybody, you know, was feeling. We were feeling it as well as DJs. So we were like, we were making records that we would love to play. And it just so happened that the other DJs love to play it too. So from 91 to 96, let's say, we did a lot of work like that. Where, you know, or sometimes we would invite Todd Terry and says, yo, lay down some keyboards on this. Let's have some fun in the studio. Oh, and we would have day. something already and he would lay down on top of it. You know, like maybe sample stuff the way we liked the way he played. You know, he sampled vocals or a little part and just the rhythms of the way he played them. So he would do that with us too. So, you know, we had different ways of, of, of making records and the influence will come from either one of us or even both of us or just being in that room or coming in with something already. So it was just about creating a lot of different grooves for us and a lot of different drum patterns of the records. We always tried to make it interesting, make it different, where he would grab samples from and, 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 you know, and just always keep it so that all the records weren't sounding the same. You know, obviously we have a Masters at Work sound that people know us by now. I mean, we, you know, we did over 1,500 recordings, but we were always trying to make it interesting for the people. And I guess that's what, and, and every record had its own special thing. Every, everybody we worked and did something for. And it's interesting, you know, especially those early remixes, um, a lot of them are relatively kind of musically simple, at least compared to the later stuff. But there was always bits in there that sounded quite obscure, unique. Did you use a lot of like tricks in the studio to kind of get a unique sound just with the equipment you had? I, yeah, I was doing crazy shit, you know. It was just the whole process of how I put it together and what I was doing and what I had available to me made me work in a certain way to get as much as I could into the machine because it wasn't there wasn't that much sampling time. And the machine was mono, not stereo. So that that was another intricate sound for us because the beat, you know, when I got to the studio, I would fight with me and the engineers would fight all the time because I want to record my stuff on one track. And it was like, no, but Louis wants it all separate and he wants to be able to control every sound. I'm like, no, but this is the <laughs> this is the bed of the meat has to be hard, and this is the way it needs to hit. So it was an argument every day, and until they they tried to get me to give in, I never gave in. They gave up, mm-hmm. you know. And that's how you know if if I pull up some of those early recordings, that's how it is. It's just like the drums and everything else, but it gave it power. 
you know, and I learned that early on from playing 45s. You know, if you play a mono 45 opposed to a stereo 45, the four, mono 45 is basically chopping your head in half. You know what I mean? It's just something about it. It's just screaming to you. When you have something stereo, it's just spread out and everything. You know, obviously, the way we mix now, things are panned. So, yeah, it calls for it. But it's harder to mix a mono record opposed to mixing a stereo record. Because you got to make everything work in one space, which is difficult. And each frequency and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's crazy. But we also figured out a different way, too. I remember we, we had them running out of the drum machine, but we also did our mutes within the drum machine. Right. You know what I'm saying? So that way we still kept that that strong sound, but mm-hmm. at the same time we were doing the mutes within the drum machine on some, you know, to a certain level, you know. But and I uh, hated song form. I hated it. That <laughs> shit used to drive me crazy. I just, you know, because it was more of a feeling. Like, you know, we used to get behind the board and, and you guys call it the desk, but we would get behind the board and, and just do passes. Yeah, he means, he means song form in the drum machine. Yeah. He doesn't mean he didn't like a song. No, no, he no, means no. song yeah. form because you had to program it. And he wanted us always, as we always like to do things live. Live, you know what So I'm we would do a lot of those mutes live that you hear on those records, you know, as they were going. You know, he may have done something with a level. I may have muted something at, on the spot. And we were doing it as the record played down. And then it would, the it's computer would natural. remember it. It's and then, then we would take it down. You know yeah. And I, I think it's really worth mentioning your work rate in the early years. You know, like you mentioned your first remix, which was Debbie Gibson. But, you know, I think from like 91 to about 92, there's something like 80 or 90 official remixes you did, all your solo master at work stuff, and then a few other aliases as well. You know, what kind of days were you working, you know, to get that much music Eight, out? 18 to 20 hour days every yeah, day. Yeah, they were heavy days. Day. Every yeah. day. Till 97. That is unbelievable. So what gives you that kind of desire? You know, it clearly wouldn't just be about the money. You know, you just start some takeover shit and that's it. <laughs> You're like, yo, we're going to take over. And that's once you have that in your head and, and you have that drive and you he has a certain drive that makes you push. And I got a other another type of drive and you got, you know, two relentless people that just coming together just to on some takeover shit. It's nothing getting in the middle, you know, and it's about building a team and having a team and having the team understand where you're trying to go and what you're trying to do. And like I said, we've had X amount of engineers that used to work together, work against each other because they were trying to top each other. So it was all good. But, yeah, it was just this is where we want to do and this is the goal. And, And Louis had said to me once, you know, he was like, look, you know, like I'm known for this type of sound. I want to go somewhere else. I, I already did that. I want to go here. I'm like, look, I got you. Let's go. And that's, mm-hmm. and that was it. And then we just went for it. So what was it? Take over New York first or just go straight take, to the world? Take over the world. <laughs> you know, what's crazy is that as a kid, you don't really think about, you know, you go to school and you, you know, you go to history class and all this shit. And it, but you never would have thought you would be in these countries and these places and the, meet these people and stuff like that through music. Just from listening to music that was out, I was just inspired to just be on some takeover thing, you know, takeover shit. And that was it. It was just like, didn't look back. Just went to work every day. You know, obviously we went to the club and we got inspired at the club or went back to the hood and went to the corner and hung out with the friends. But 
at a point, they were coming to visit us in the studio because yeah, that's how that's much how we it. were there. We were there all the time. They would just... come to the studio to drink and, and that kind of stuff because that was home base. You know what I'm saying? Only place they could find you. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. I mean, we were super focused. You know what I mean? That was it. We were ambitious focused. It was just, we wanted to do it. It wasn't boring to us. Every day was another adventure. That was it. And how did you decide what to say yes to and no to? You must have had so many offers for remixes back then. For the amount of remixes that are out that you know about, the same amount we turned down. Wow. So what was the deciding factors then? The type of record, there was nothing in the record to actually make a dub. Because you got to understand, after a certain point, everybody wanted a dub. I'm like, no, but you're not worthy of a dub because you're not, you don't even have a line in your record to make a dub out of it. Yeah, there had to be something interesting <laughs> in the song. You know what you know? I'm saying? So It could have been a hook. It could have been a, uh, just a horn line. It could have been something, but it had to spark ideas in us and be like, okay, we want to use this. We can do something with this. Sometimes one of us would get the idea and say, look, you know, I hear something with this. Okay, let's try it. And then we, we would hear that in the song. Then we would accept the remix. But yeah, he's right. You know, a lot came in and we just... You know, we just didn't want to do it to do it. You know, for us, it wasn't about grabbing that, you know, money. Of course, the money came with it, with everything. But we realized that these records that we made, we already felt that we wanted timeless records. That was it. Yeah, and it was about, I always thought longevity. I always thought, I didn't, as much as we were doing, I felt that we wasn't milking it, even though we were doing a lot. Because, like I said, the half of that amount we were rejecting, you know what I'm saying? So I just wanted to say, look, the stuff is quality. I feel good about it. If you didn't hear it, we didn't feel good about it because it's, it's locked up somewhere and nobody's ever going to hear it. We were really, really particular about what we released as our labels and, and so on and so forth. On what we handed in, it wasn't just about a check, like he said. The other thing is, you know, we kind of made our own little pack. Like if I didn't like something, I would tell him and it would be erased. And the same thing, vice versa. If if I made a B, he's like, oh, I don't really think that's going to fit. All right, scratch it. Let's go. Let's move on. It was about making the best possible record, period, for the brand, for the team, for our movement. You know what I'm saying? And And that was it, you know. And that's fascinating to me because, you know, I, I assume the money was there. You know, like when major labels realized, you know, a master at work remix might add half a million sales to certain records, you know, um, I'm sure they were pretty forthcoming with that side of things too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, what's happening with DJing now happened with remixing, put yeah. it that way, you know, in the 90s. So we were in the middle of that, so we were lucky. You know, and the cool thing is that even the records that we made, we came up with three or four grooves for that record. So if you pull up those master tapes... You're going to hear other things that we, I mean, we, we looked at one or two songs a while back and we found all the grooves and we were like, wow, I don't even remember doing that. He don't remember doing that. But, you know, if you look deep in the in our masters, you know, there's room enough to make three or four other records out of each of those. You know what I mean? So there's there's a lot of music the, there. The other thing is we always did the main version, which was the song. And then we did our dub. So it was like you're doing, you're handing in two two separate pieces of music every time. Plus the extra, the instrumentals and the beat versions and everything else that goes along with it. But it came, we had such a rhythm with it that we would just knock those things out left and right. And it was just, it was just part of the job pretty much. 
So a huge step forward for you guys is when you start doing your own songs, you know, I Can't Get No Sleep with India. Was that a big step up, you know, doing more songwriting, arranging, or did that just come naturally to you guys? No, it was a big step up because it was the first time Masses at Work were able to have a full song. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to take those dubs that we made that was so popular and everybody loved and take that kind of instrumentation and stuff but put a song on it. And we just happened to have, you know, to been able to work with the best singers in in, in, in the dance game at that time, which was, you know, uh, India, Jocelyn Brown, uh, oh goodness, Cindy Mizell, like so many different the background crews that we brought in. Uh, you know, we, we were able to work with uh, the artists that we had relationships with, you know, from making records before. So we brought them in to to sing the leads and, and they were writing these great songs. So it just... Rest yeah. in peace. He was just like such a fucking Derek Wigger, a songwriter, amazing talent with lyrics and energy and Lem Springsteen from Move to Swing. Just, just amazing, you know. I always think about him from time to time because it's just like, you know, one day we heard that he had passed on, and it was just, it was just crazy. It was just like, wow, somebody with so much energy, you know what I'm saying, is not here no more, and. You know, he was instrumental in them records, you know, and, and setting up them background parts and just be like, you yeah, know. Yeah, random great hooks. Was gangster yeah. with it. It was just like, you got this, you do this, you know, and keep it moving, you know. But I learned a lot from that, believe it or not, and I used that later on, you know, probably like when I started doing R&B records and stuff like that. It, it, it came in, just watching that was able to work with singers and so on and so forth but not to even think 20 years later i would use that you know but yeah it's it's deep it's it's you know the the road has been it's been great you know what i'm saying we learned a lot you know you got to think about two guys who just love music and later on began to understand the structure of songs and arrangements and how to work with musicians which is not easy and people's temperaments and attitudes and knowing how to make people feel comfortable and yeah it's great and which louis has a a, a good you know make people feel comfortable in the studio so it's a lot that goes into it it's not just about having a machine or having a keyboard or having a microphone in a studio to record there's a lot of behind the scenes that people don't realize that actually go into recording you know the mood you're in that day might just make you you could be angry or sad or happy it just makes you go in a different direction you know um some of the beats you know when i came in i was going through something you could see the beat was very aggressive because of that you know what i'm saying and louis on the other hand same thing might have been going through something you could tell in this the keyboard playing which is deep to me because it's just, it's emotion that you're letting out, you know what I mean? So it's, it's a lot that goes into it, which I don't think people realize. I think, you know, everybody looks at it, you know, oh, those dubs, like we can make them. Yeah, you could try and make them and you, people are making them, but it's different, you know, it's a different feeling, you know, you could tell, you know? Because that's really interesting to me, you know, that there has been quite a resurgence for those masters that work dubs in recent years, mostly on vinyl labels, which is, which is cool. but. No one really ever does manage to kind of, they're trying to recapture your sound, but they don't really ever really manage it. Well, like I said, a lot goes into it. A lot goes into the production of it. A lot goes into the sounds. You know, I was using two and three machines at once. I remember us getting a new piece of equipment. I'll be like, Louis, this keyboard is dope. I heard it. We would get it and he would go through it 
and literally write like before the session, he would go through all the patches and be like, I'm using and go and he already knew in his head of kind of what he wanted to do. So he would write down all these numbers. And then as we're cutting the record, he's actually going through all the numbers to see if 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 those sounds kind of match of what we wanted to do and what we're trying to accomplish. So and that's lot, how we move so fast, too. Yeah. Yeah. So a lot goes into it. You know what I mean? Beat was done. Come in. The sounds were picked. We just picked the sounds. We went through them. We started playing grooves, you know, in, in that case. And uh, that's how we came up with like two or three different things. I mean, you know, it's funny when I think about some of these songs that we did. We were working on remixes when some of the probably some of our greatest tracks were done while we were working on other people's records. You know what I mean? So, but they just didn't fit that. Yeah, that kinda, artist. You kind of uh, know. You, know? you kind of know if it's you know because the other thing is too, like you said, yeah, you're doing a remix and this thing may not come out. Because no matter what, if you turn it in and you got paid, you got your, your second half, but it might not put the shit out. It might just get shelved. You know, you don't know. So it's like, all right, we're keeping this one. <laughs> like, we'll do something else for, for them or whatever, you know? So. Well, didn't the Nervous track come out of you doing something for Ultra Notte and you're like, hold on, hold on, this is a bit too Where'd good. you get that information from? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> He's been doing his homework. <laughs> but nah, that that track is crazy because we could talk about Southport a little bit, you know. Um, that was very inspired from Southport. You know, we walked into Giles Peterson at Southport in the jazz room, and I was like, "What the hell is going on in here?" Everybody was dressed in suits, shoes, dancing their asses off, sweating, music. Everybody happy, feeling good. And it was my first experience of seeing that to an Art Blakey record that was like 168 beat per minute flying. And I'm like, I told him, I'm like, yo, what is going on here? But that inspired the broken beat. And that's what made me come up with the broken beat. Honestly, I didn't even remember that that song came from that session, did it? Yeah, I mean, you know, I remember I you had that jazz album. He had a jazz album with it was like a lot of uh, the greatest drummers playing yeah, Shelly beats, Man, yep. playing beats, and it was just beats. But he sampled like I would say five different drummers, and when you hear those things going through and those samples, they're running at the same time. But the way he picked every little yeah, section like and every little beat, loops. you know, it was crazy the way it went together. Then he was muting them in and out, and then I just happened to come up with this chord progression that. It was different. I said, Kenny, look at this. Listen to this sound. And uh, what was that? The Oberheimer, one of those keyboards that I was mm -hmm. playing these chords from. And it was just those three chords. They were so eerie. I said, yeah. and he had that beat. I said, let me play these chords on that beat. And it just fit perfect. We were like, wow. And then the bass line came. And then the little organ thing. You know, at, at that time, what? Plastic Dreams was out. We was influenced from other records, too. Plastic Dreams was out, and that's why we did that little dun 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 dun, dun. It was not really like Plastic Dreams, but that record was so hot at the time, it was just in our heads. And, you know, we just put that little riff in there. But when we went down and he programmed all the parts to where they came in and out, but they went in and out live, down, I mean, it just became this masterpiece. Then we said, listen, let's, let's put in some per live percussion. And Kenny had a friend from Brooklyn, street percussionist, who came in and we put him in and playing congas, you know, but it was all 
influence from yeah when we went to Southport and walked in that room and heard Josh Peterson playing jazz records and like a Tito Puente record and a, like he would go in all these places and these people were dancing just that whole vibe had us like wow what is this yeah it was different but I still want to know what alternate record that was that record called Show Me or something? That was it? Yeah, that's when we, we did that session, yeah. And that's a dope remix, too. That dub came out crazy. Is, is it called Show Me or Show Me Something? No, we did the Show Me record. It was that night. It was, I'll never forget, too. Oh, wow. I totally forgot about that. I don't even know. I don't think we even used that synth sound on that record. But we just said, yo, let's, you know, we laid that thing down, and then we said we went later on and put the percussion after and all that. You that's know. good. That's good. You did yeah, your homework. Yeah, nice, Congrats nice to job you, on that. <laughs> but um, obviously, you know that connection with Giles stuck, and you know you went to do the New Weekend album with him on Talking Loud. When, what point did you decide we're going to do this as an album? It's going to be a bigger thing. It's going to be more than just dance music. Well, first of all, before that, what blew us away was that. The Nervous track was played by Funk Master Flex, as well as house DJs, as right. well as drum and bass DJs. Like, all these DJs from the different genres were calling us and saying, yo, we love that track. We were like, really? <laughs> we didn't even know, right? But we knew in our realm, Sound Factory Bar, wherever we were playing, that we knew the record was blowing up. But we didn't know it was doing that. Right. So then Giles said, you guys are making it, you know, you should make an album with that New York and Soul thing. And I said, but we were already planning that. You know what I mean? So the first thing we did, well, we reached out to all of our friends. Yeah, so but yeah, it was just like, you know, we came up with this concept. So like, all right, so let's let's do all our influences, you know what I'm saying? And let's put that into a project. We spoke to a few people, a few labels, everybody was like that we were crazy out of their minds. How <laughs> how were we gonna market it and so on and so forth. Nobody wanted to give us a budget. <laughs> so, so we did it on our so own. So we were like, fuck it. Let's just take our money. We went in. At that time, we had our own place, so we just started putting the puzzle together. And then, like, working with one artist led us to another artist and, to, you know, just kept going like that. And well, it started, what, with Roy Ayers, yeah. Tito Puente, Eddie Palmieri, yeah. India, and Jocelyn Brown. Those are the first five we went because we already had relationships with all of them. Yeah, we knocked those out. And then once we had that, we had this... That's what we got to show to the others because, you know, we're not going to go to George Benson with no record, nothing, and be like, we want to just record you. No, but you know? <laughs> the funny thing was is that they thought we were fucking crazy because <laughs> they were like, but none of this thing made, nothing made sense to anybody right. but us. We yeah, already heard knew. heard the song separate, yeah. We already knew where we were going with it and where we wanted to go with it, but all the artists and musicians that came in, it didn't make sense to them at all. You know, and Tito Puente said it best because he was just like, yo, it's a masterpiece. You know what I'm saying? Like, for two guys that ain't classically trained and all that kind of stuff to put something together, like, this is crazy. But he was saying, coming from a DJ's point, it was ill, you know? Yeah, so finally we put it together. And, you know, at that point, I don't remember exactly how Morris Bernstein came into the picture, Giant Step, but he was around and he wanted the project and... Giles obviously at the same time was instrumental and he even said come to my house go through my records you know go through stuff and which was another story yeah we went to his place and everything we went to his place the day of a, of a soccer match 
That's how we found the rotary connection. He he showed uh, us the rotary connection. I was going to say, who showed you the rotary connection first time round? He played that's in his deep house. Cut. He, but, so but, that was Giles. But the crazy thing is, we went to his house to the soccer. It was like his man opened the door and was like, "The records are down there." Yeah, he don't want to come down. He was the watch of that soccer game. He wasn't coming out of that. There room. was we could have robbed the whole house of all the <laughs> records in a truck, and they would not even know him because the soccer was on, football was on. They, they didn't care. So uh, it was pretty funny, but yeah, Giles Giles showed us the the rotary connection record, and uh, which is just worth saying that that is the record that you covered to become Black Hole of the Sun. In uh, case people uh, don't know, absolutely, people check the original; it's amazing too. Yeah, yes. yeah, nah, uh, Charles Stepney was crazy with it. So, you know, and then finally, you know, we we going through Giant Step, we had Giles in and over here in in London. Yeah, I think and it was Giles who recommended, because him and Morris were friends. We maybe. know Morris, too. Right. And we needed a release in the U.S. They might have been sister labels or something, yeah. So, yeah, he was the only one that would get this project, and he reached out to us and heard about it, I guess maybe through Giles. And then that was it. We had our U.S.-based label and our uh, U.K. label. I mean, the important thing is that we found these two guys that understood it. You know what I mean? Because they come from a world of good music, all kinds of music, and they love the idea you know so that's the main thing and you know we found the home for it well, then we met tommy the puma and that opened up a whole new door yeah that's how we met benson and 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 mm -hmm. that track in itself was strange because it, you know we came up with the beat and the music for it and again it was on that broken kind of style and we played it to george and at first he was a little like what the hell is this but then he ended up playing on it anyway so when he played on it, I looked at Louis. I'm like, oh, man, we got to do something else with this. And then he actually left for a couple hours. I said, okay, we got to break by ourselves. Let's just tear this shit apart. And so we tore it up, and I made a new beat, and he played yeah. new chords. We had another keyboard in there that I had just found in somewhere. and It was a Moog, and the original Moog. You know? You chord. flipped your own track halfway through. But if I play you the original song, yeah, it's not even that. You're gonna be like, "How the hell did you go from that to that?" But that's where the remixing skills came in, because mm -hmm. yeah, we did remix our own record pretty much before anybody heard it, because you know it wasn't crazy? it wasn't right. You know, it wasn't right when we first did it. You know, it's crazy. I remember that track, the first track we did for George Benson for uh, "You Can Do It." It wasn't even for George Benson. We it was a dream for us to have Fela Kuti on New York and Soul. But I believe he passed away around that time, mm -hmm. and we weren't, you know, you know, we weren't able to work with him, unfortunately. But we had that track, and when we gave it to Benson, I remember because he says, "Oh, it's so Afro." He knew it was Afro already, but he came in and played on that. But then we said, "Oh my God, look what he just played, man! We can't, we can't." And, and you know, fit. even even the fit. vocals, they're all they were everywhere. He was just singing a lot of hooks and a lot of things. We made the way you hear, you can do it now by taking every little bit of ad-libs, and then we came up with this other groove, and Kenny was on this broken beat thing, and you know, at that time, Goldie, all this other stuff was going on, and we were like, boom, you know, Kenny just like, you know, he wanted to try something different than doing all the four floor beats that we were doing for so long. So then that's when that beat came in, and that two chord progression thing, I started playing it, and it worked out, but then I said, man, we need like bigger chords. And that's when we brought in Albert Menendez, and he replayed the chords that I had originally done with the bass line, with that kind of Latin-y bass line. And then that was the, the groove. You know, it became that broken beat kind of, I feel it was one of the very early ones, right? Uh, well, Nervous Track was definitely, we definitely known for the early, first 
Broken Beat sound. And then, yeah, that continued on from there. You but know? I think even that beat, for me, the, the You Can Do It beat, it influenced that Broken Beat thing that was happening here in the UK. Yeah. Boom, boom, you know that whole thing yeah, that Kenny sure. did that was a big influence for that sound where that you had like Bugs in the Attic and all these guys out here that were making great records at, you know at that time too I feel that that was one of the early tracks that helped maybe you know get some vibes with people I mean you know when we did that track we were just blown away we were like you know when we heard Tommy the Puma told us wow Louie you know you guys haven't I, we haven't heard George Benson like that you guys captured a sound like the world is a ghetto. And for him to tell me that, I was like, wow, Kenny, we really did something. You know, because <laughs> Simon the Puma is up there with Quincy Jones. And you know what I'm saying? It's like we're talking about one of the top, top producers of all time saying that. And he produced Joyce Benson, the big hits from back in the days, too, for all these years. You know, so Does it get better than that? Oh, no, it doesn't. That was the ultimate compliment. When he told me that, I said, Kenny, man, he just said that we captured a feeling like the world is a ghetto. And I said, man, we got something here, man. This is special. So, you know, aside from, you know, doing that project, all around that time, it was really, well, definitely one of the golden periods for New York house music. You know, you had labels like Strictly, Nervous, Henry Street. It seems like every week they were bringing out almost a classic. Did you feel aware of that at the time? Like we we're in the center of this thing and it's a, a, a golden period or, or not really, or you just not at heads all, down? Man. Just going. Yeah, I don't think people were, you know, nice. we were just having a good time yes. making records, going to the club. I was playing at the Sound Factory Bar. We would be testing out the songs and all these other DJs that were making those great records were bringing it to us too. So we were kind of in the middle of it. We didn't know that they were going to be these records that will become the way we look at Salso and Prelude and those labels. People look at Strict Rhythm and Nervous and, and these labels for house music. You know, that's... We didn't know that at that time. Now we know that. We're like, wow, this is amazing that, you know, these records can 20 years later be, you know, played. Well, it must have been exciting, though, to, you know, to be at the Sound Factory Bar. You know, it was your night, the Underground Network. With guys like MK just bringing you a dub that's like, you know, the Nightcrawlers and no one else has got it and dropping those kind of tracks or, or the bomb or, or any of those big tracks, you know. What was the reaction like down oh there? Oh, my God. It was overwhelming. I mean, I'm telling you, when you would see, I remember when Kenny brought me that. First of all, I was playing the other side. I want to know, right? That's the one I was playing. A lot of people were playing the other side. Playing the other side. And then we turned it around to the street player thing. You know, the crowd, we had a great crowd because they were musically inclined. They would react right away. And then we had the cream of the crop of the industry hanging out in this club. So, you know, this was a party I did with uh, Barbara Tucker and Don Welch. They were the promoters. It was, you know, the Underground Network work work was their party. And they invited me to be the DJ and the music programmer, the director with them, you know. And we together chose the DJs that played downstairs. And we chose the groups that performed. But at the same time, Kenny and I were working on so much music that we would bring the artists that we were working on to the club. So you would see George Benson hanging out there. All of a sudden, he got up and started singing Give Me the Night. People were blown away. Tito Puente coming down, playing after he did the Blue Note, you know, and he performed Love and Happiness with India. I mean, it was crazy. I mean, we had these historic nights, you know, so it was great to have that happening in New York City, but we didn't know that it was going to be something that was going to spread around the world the way it did, you know. Yeah, because you're just in the grind, you know, you just like working and yeah you want to do timeless stuff but i guess you're so consumed on everything else that's going on and 
you're trying to have a personal life at the same time and you got this going on and that going on and he's playing at the club and then we're in the studio and then or we're in the studio then he got to go play like it, it was just fucking chaotic oh it was you cool know? man we would go from the club sometimes we would go back to the studio yeah and finish that record and then we would call people like because you know you had Gladys Pizarro Strictly Rhythm right she had the relationship with all of us, all the DJs. So she would be calling us all the time, what you got, what you got, what you got. You know, then you have Michael Weiss, what you got. We would call them at like four or five in the morning. Yo, come check out this track. They would wake up. They don't do that now, I'll tell you. They won't do that now. But they would wake up from whatever they were doing and come to the studio to listen to that track because they knew that if we were excited about it, that it was something that they could have to license around the world and have on their label. You know what I mean? It's almost like the bat signal or something. You, you yeah. threw it out and they were coming. Michael says it to this day. He says, you know, I regret the time. We invited him to the studio. We have finished. We did a beautiful people, you know, and he says, I regret passing on that track because he passed on that. And Gladys jumped on it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so he, he always talks about that. You know, it's funny. But, you know, they used to come and see us. That's how there was a buzz in New York City. You know, everybody was excited. You had Armand Van Helden making tracks, coming down to the club. I, think, I, think I mean, you everybody, just, you Todd. Just, you just said something really key. It was unified. People work together no matter what. Even if they're in the same room, you're getting energy from different producers and different people and friends. Whereas today, I feel everything's so separate. Or clicky. Or clicky. You know what I'm saying? And and I think we're all here to push music and push this forward. But I could say, hands down, we were the only team that brought people together. Yeah, we were. You know what I'm saying? From DJs to musicians to artists. Because I remember even before... Lincoln with Louis, or even throughout the period, nobody would let anybody else into anything. You know what I'm saying? It was just like, nah, this is mine. No, you can't come in. No, I'm not showing you this. No, you know, because everybody's scared because they're like, oh, he's going to take my spot. But the way I look at it is everybody's an individual. So, you know what? What's in my mind, you ain't thinking, and what you're thinking, I ain't thinking. So it, it goes without saying. So, we unified a lot of shit. So today is like almost like everything's just scatterbrained, you know what I mean? And it happened in Miami. In Miami, you could go to Miami to the Winter Music Conference and actually break records there and license and do licensing deals there. But when Winter Music Conference decided they didn't want to support no underground labels, I'm like, wait a minute. We've been supporting you. Now you don't want to support us? All right, we're doing our own shit. <laughs> We started doing our own parties. That's when we started the Masters at Work parties. And We're the ones who broke off and did our afternoon. Nobody was doing an afternoon party, a pool party, a beach party, none of that. We started that. You know what I'm saying? So, and it was about unifying it. You know, that's why when you go to ADE, it feels so different. Because everybody's kind of intermingling and trying to work together and trying to, what can we do together? You know what I'm saying? What, what can we do? You know, pretty much records or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think that's very important where he touched on and that club was so special because a lot of different types of people came together and one way or another were working together somehow. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, because it's, it's probably worth saying, you know, we don't have to go through them all, but, you know, Eric Murillo, for example, you gave him his first break. You know, there's, there's, pl- there's plenty more DJs now that, you know, came up on that New York scene and definitely... There was a lot that came out of our studio. Oh, yeah. Mood to Swing, Eric Murillo, 
Dexter yeah. Simmons, who went out to mix Michael Jackson, cut Rodney Jerk and stuff and worked with all that. He was our en- like assistant engineer. There was tons of people. And everybody worked at our studio from Deep yeah. Dish to Danny Tenaglia. Yeah. I mean, you name it, because the MEW Studios, we had, a, we had a great setup there. We had a great setup. Big speakers, 18s. I mean, 18 bottoms, 15 tops. I mean, we had an SSO board. We had all the gear you, you want. You know what I mean? We, we made it available to everybody. I mean, we had our little special pieces, but we made that basic thing available to everybody. And uh, since we were making so many records out of there, everybody wanted that kind of sound too. You know, And our engineers, if you look at their track record, all the other guys uh, started hiring them. So he was almost like the uh, NYC house Motown or something like that <laughs> for one point. Yeah, it was. It was. It was just, uh, like I said, it was a unified kind of, you know, movement. You know what I mean? Um, one thing I do want to mention this to you, and I'm not even sure if you were aware at the time, but all the time, you know, this amazing New York house scene is going on. Something very strange was going on in the UK with people in the UK playing your records way too fast, playing the dub versions. And that's basically where you get Speed Garage, UK Garage sprang out. Did, did you become aware of that at the time? Uh, or, or is that something you found out much later, what was going on with your records in the UK? I heard they were they were speeding up Blood Vibes on 45. And the minus, other one, minus and the other eight, one too. Um, and uh, Just a Little, little dope. dope. I heard they were doing those two. I didn't really think too much of it, honestly. But later on, like Ronnie Size and, and artists and DJs like that, that are friends of ours, he was like, do you know that, like, the drum and bass in the jungle comes from that record. And I actually went back and listened to it. And if you listen to it, the bass line going so fast, it is reminiscent of a drum and bass record. But it's crazy that that influence came from that because I would have never even, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, ama- it's pretty amazing. Before we go on a little bit later, you know, after you finished the New York and Soul album, um, you kind of eventually went back to making more straightforward house music, shall we say. But it was very musical when you came back, you know, records like To Be In Love. I just wondered if you could talk about that record for the moment, because that's a record that still, you know, resonates you know, so well. You know, you played it at Boiler Room and it was definitely one of the biggest reactions. <laughs> well, you know, uh, To Be In Love is funny because it came from a jazz record that Tito Puente did. And he had uh, India as his lead singer. So at that time, India had done Runaway uh, for New Eureka and Soul. And she wanted to uh, work with Vince Montana. So when she got together with Vince Montana, he had a song that he had written with Joey Latanzi, I believe his name is. And it was a song called To Be In Love. But when you listen to it on the jazz album, it's more like a jazz thing, you know, Vince Montana style. I thought the song was powerful. It sounded young, too. It had a thing to it. We got permission from the label that Tito Puente was on in India, and uh, we put it out on more records. But when we went in and got the acapella, it was all about, you know, that same thing. We went in and remixed the song, and it just became what it was. It was that bass line. You know, we brought Gene in, and, you know, Kenny did. You know, the beat is more simple, but it's powerful. You know what I mean? But it's got something really special about it when the bass and the drums are together there. And then we had Albert Menendez. So we had our New Eurekan crew already in there, the band, you know, the the, the musicians. We we put the Wurlitzer up, and that's what you hear. The, the main keyboard is a Wurlitzer. That was it. I mean, you know, that song, it just... It just took off, but we couldn't believe it. But we had the first part of the song. And at that time, you know, as we always, you know, we would always come up with these vamps that had nothing to do with the song. 
So then that's what it became like this, what, 12-minute record or something like that? It's 12 minutes or something? I don't know how long it is. 10 yeah, minutes? I think it's nearly 13. <laughs> yeah. And then we went into that ending piece, and, and we had asked India just to ad-lib. And then she just did that in one take. And, and But it wasn't until uh, it came to the U.K., that people were saying, guys, do you really know how big this record is? I'm like, nah, we, you know, we, we like it, but, you know, you know, but then we started realizing that, you know, Pete Tong, everybody was calling and stuff and playing it on the radio. And I said, they said, do you know that this record is on the radio every single day? I'm like, really? We didn't, we had no idea, right, that it was going to do that. I mean, you know, it became like almost like a, a wedding record. You know, people played it at their weddings. We had people come up to us. We got married to that song. I'm like, oh, cool. <laughs> I never thought that we would have a dance record that would inspire people to get married. You know what I'm saying? It was pretty right. wild. And then we brought yeah. Vince Montana back in. And he played the vibes in the middle of the song. You know, it just, the record just catapulted, you know, huge, you know. And it lasted forever. It never, like, you know, it became this record that people always wanted to hear. That at one point we were just like, oh my god, we gotta play this record again, you know. But that's it what was it, like, you know? it was like yesterday when I played it. I actually played the original version that I bumped into by mistake, and it's six minutes long. It's short, but the beat is different. Now I know you're both big diggers. You know, just a real obvious question: what's what's your best find that you've ever came across in in some kind of store? Just something that's really blown you away. I was in the store in the Bronx. This record store was was actually the store Grand Groove, Louis. You probably remember that label, yeah. Grand Groove. It had Catch the Beat, T-Ski Valley. Yeah. I went into the basement, and actually I was with a bunch of friends. We went digging. There was Supposedly, there was a lot of 45s in this basement of this this store. Now, mainly he had did like hip-hop, 80s, 12-inch stuff, but it was a Jamaican reggae shop. Went into the basement. I remember that day, clearly, it was snowing outside, but... I happen to have shorts on with my Timberlands and, and a hoodie. So that's how I was just comfortable, you know? I was the first one down to the basement. As soon as I got to the bottom of the steps, it was dark and I had to pull the light switch, right? One of those hanging. So one of my feet went in and I was up to past my knee in water, right? We got the light on. There was like these big ass flies running around right in the basement it was crazy but in the corner of my left eye I see a wall of 45s so I went to the wall in the water and everything and I pulled out my first record and it was a skull snaps 45 which everybody was pissed because it was just like he pulled out an unplayed copy of skull snap I said all right guys I'm done for the day I'll be in the truck I'll wait for you outside that was it. <laughs> so you, you know, uh, risked life and limb going through hey, dangerous water, beating off flies. But you didn't know what the water was. You didn't know what was going on down there. It was crazy. You know what I'm saying? It was just like, oh, yeah, there's been a lot of those, though, you know, throughout the years of digging, you know. So so I just want to talk about some of your individual projects for a little while. You know, we haven't got that much time to talk about them, but there's a couple I definitely want to shout out. You know, Louis, your Olympus of Life project, you know, that's something that feels really special. Can you just say a little bit about what that is and, you know, how that all got going? Well, Elements of Life is my live band project. It kind of started back in 93, 94, and, uh, you know, basically bringing all of my friends together. And I wanted to create something more on the... African jazz, Latin soul, more world kind of thing, different languages and just a more uh, worldly 
unity kind of project. Almost my friends and I coming together, and it's a it's a really really wonderful group. You know, it's a Josh Milan who's an amazing songwriter singer, Anane as well songwriter singer she sings in different languages and then we have the full elements of life band Luisito Quintero who's a great percussionist who used to work with us with New York and Soul and a lot of our projects on MAW uh, also Jean Perez a newcomer uh, Axel Tosca on keyboards and basically we've, to we've toured the world we've done everything from the Montreal Jazz Festivals to the Jazz Cafe to to stadiums to you know, composing for Cirque du Soleil. So it's been really, really a wonderful project. And um, now we're on the next, uh, the third album. It's called Eclipse and came out last March. So now we're doing this special remix projects where we're uh, we're uh, releasing EPs with each artist. And Anane was the first who has a release now with remixes by, you know, Rob Gum, myself, D. Jeff, a lot of, you know, the young talent today. And, uh, and now we're going to Josh Meland and uh, Lisa Fisher and Cindy Mizell and the rest of the crew. So it's a really nice, uh, now a new resurgence of all the remixes is bringing a new life to the project as well. And it's on Fani Records, which is a dream for which, me. Which, um, yeah, your uncle's label as well, right? Yeah, we, we didn't yeah. even mention your uncle yeah. the whole time. Yeah, Hector Lavoe, he's a Fani Records recording artist. And uh, it's really uh, an honor to be able to be on that label, which Fani was the... You know, what Motown is to Latin music, that's what funny is to Latin music. Fantastic. And Kenny, you know, you, you've got so many different projects, it's kind of hard to fit them all in, you know, from KD, the reissues label to, you know, the hip hop stuff you've been doing, you know, and of course house stuff too. Is there a particular project that you're working on right now on a, on a solo tip we should know about? Man, there's so much. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, the, the latest thing that I just put out is the on KD is... Um, the Wild Style Breakbeats book, actually, of the instrumentals, you know, spread out over 745s, a collection of pictures of Wild Style from Charlie Ahern and uh, Marty Cooper, which is crazy, just to document what happened in the film and, and having the instrumentals to the MCs that rap to these those instrumentals in the film to actually put those out, you know, as a reissue is getting a lot of press worldwide actually it's it's really being accepted so it's the first the first run of this KD book series that I'm actually doing so it's exciting to actually be able to put stuff like that together today you know obviously I've had the KD imprint for almost 11 years now so that was basically came up on as a hobby and and reissuing obscure records in 45s and, and stuff like that. So now we're just venturing out and just expanding and taking that to the next level. The Rashid Chappelle album should be out probably February, March of next year, finishing that follow-up to Future Before Nostalgia album. And yeah, there's tons of stuff, you know, I got records with Josh, he works with Louis. We also do stuff together as well. Raheem Devon, next album of that is coming. Dion Farris, that's another artist who I'm actually doing a gospel album on. And The Fantastic Souls, which is, you know, my side of the liveness, you know what I mean? Uh, more on the soul and funk tip. Yeah, so there's tons, lots, you know? So, you know, obviously you're both super busy with these projects. Is that part of the reason that it doesn't ever feel like either as DJs together as Masterwork or on your solo thing, you ever really need to go to commercial. You can go and do these other things. You know, a lot of your other cohorts from you know the 90s have gone down a very commercial dance route. Well, that's what it's about, man. It's like, you know, the difference between now and when we started years ago, 
you could put out, you know, a few things and make a certain number. Now you got to work more and you got to put out more to compensate for that. But it also makes it makes more ideas come when you got to do more and you got to be interactive more and you got to, you know, be on social media more and and the feedback from the fans and people that follow you is is interesting and and seeing them at a gig or talking to them last night at Boiler Room, you know, it's interesting, you know what I mean? Because you, you get to actually speak to them on a one-on-one, and also it makes them feel like they're able to talk to you. So, you know, yeah, but I never wanted to go that route, you know what I'm saying? We we want to do records and, and we want to do big projects and work with artists, but I don't think we have to go and do the cheese, you know what I'm saying? Or Because I'm, I'm here to do this for a long time, you know, artists that, kind of do that now they're trying to come back to this and it's going to be very hard to come back to this after you've gone there because the people that supported you from here didn't go there and know that you went there and they don't want you back you guys want to so, be like an art blakey or something so, you know so, still yeah, going nah, you know it's it's about making music from here opposed to just music to get paid or playing music just to get paid. I remember when when the whole EDM thing came in, you know, I went through a little depression thing because it was just like, people were like, oh, you know, we want you to play this club, but you gotta play EDM. I'm like, I'm not playing that shit. Like, I don't like the music, you know what I'm saying? I just, there's nothing in it for me. Honestly, there's nothing in it for me. So it was just like, I can't do that. So I waited it out. I let it go. I just, you know, until, and I said, you know what? I'm going to start doing some new records. And I did new records, and that's when the bookings, you know, came back. And and just saying that is something Todd Terry once told me very early on. He said, look, if you want to stay relevant and DJ, you got to put out music. Once you stop putting out music, the gigs dry up. It's so true. Because anytime you stop, everything dries up. It's almost like they forget about you. You know what I'm saying? And it's just like, oh, you put a record out, right? And then it's like everything comes back again, you know? So I think what's unique about us is we we have a passion for something and we play it and we play it and we play it. You know what? They might not like it. They might not feel it, but you keep playing it. And then you build a crowd that's into it. You know what I'm saying? And again, it's like, I'm here for the long haul. I'm sure he's here for the long haul. We're here for the long haul. And it's about making great music, that's it.